0: Take your Bibles if you have them, and turn to Psalm 51, Psalm 51. And we're going to build off what chaplain Ken preached on last week, which was Psalm 23, verse 4, talking about God restoring our soul. We're going to be talking about recovering from failure today from Psalm 51. I'd like you to think about this as we look at Psalm 51 today that as you think about sinful failure in your own life, you'll be able to experience the wonderful matchless grace of Christ that leads you to honest repentance and also to earnest spiritual renewal that impacts both you and others. So before we get to Psalm 51, I wanted to kind of set the stage for what David is praying about in Psalm 51, going back to 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. And we may be without today. So that's the way it is. So the historical backdrop, backdrop of Psalm 51 is found in Second Samuel chapter 11 and going into chapter 12. And we know in 2 Samuel chapter 11 verses 1 through 5 that David lies with Bathsheba and commits adultery. And she also conceives a child through this illicit relationship. While her husband Uriah is on the front lines fighting the enemy Philistines in battle. Then in chapter 11, verses 6 through 13, we're told that David calls Uriah back from the front lines. And he gets him drunk in the misguided hope that what he would do is go down to Bathsheba to help him cover up for the adultery. But instead what happened is Uriah said, the men aren't going to be able to be with their wives So I'm not going to be with my wife either. And so David basically compounds his sin. And then in verses 14 to 24, he engineers Uriah's death at the front lines by using Joab, the commander, as the middleman. Are you able to get there or not? Oh, well. And then verse 25, David has Joab encourage the rest of the troops to keep on attacking the enemy. Again, to cover up his previous sin, and through, so through the course of events, we see that uh, David has committed adultery. He's committed murder, and he's lied, and then he's done at least a double, if not a triple, cover up. What happens then in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel is that Nathan the prophet confronts David, and he doesn't do it directly. He does it in an indirect way. I think we're close to catching up. Very good. I'm just going to read the first part of 2nd Samuel chapter 12 to kind of give you a glimpse of where David is at when he writes Psalm 51. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, "There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children." He used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man as he listened to Nathan recount this story. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity and then right then and there Nathan said to David you are the man or in the old king James version thou art the man essentially David had to have his conscience touched by the agent of the prophet of God, in order to see the gravity of his own sin. And then in the rest of 2 Samuel 12, we see that Nathan describes the consequences for David's sin, including the death of the baby that had just been conceived. But he does say something that's very interesting. He says in verse 13, the second half, the Lord has put away your sin, you shall not die. So David is spared death, but is not spared death the consequences for his sin. So that gives us a backdrop into Psalm 51. So turn to Psalm 51, and if you don't have your own Bibles, I have all the verses up on the screen from the English Standard Version. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know My transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you might be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And then he says, Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. And he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take now your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. And he then says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and open my mouth. My mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do good in Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. That's quite a passage, isn't it? And I decided to read everything in there because you miss something if you tend to skip around. There's so much in Psalm 51 that goes with that passage in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. Well, last week, we looked at Psalm 23, verse 3 and 4. Chaplain Ken preached about the fact that God does restore our soul. And there were three elements he mentioned specifically, that God gives us remission from sin, God gives us redemption, and then he gives us reconciliation with God. This week, we're going to get into the practicality the idea of what do we do about it when we fall into specific sin. So it kind of piggybacks off what we talked about last week in the idea, theologically, that God restores our soul and that He forgives us of our sin. He gives us that remission, that redemption, that reconciliation. So go back, if you would, to verse 1. And we're going to start picking this psalm apart a little bit as we look at the ingredients of David's restoration with God. And as you go back to verse 1, we see that this is a truth that is universal. The only thing that David could do when he fell into sin was to call out to God. And this is something that each one of us needs to remember and keep in mind whenever we fall into sin. And you notice here in verse 1, three times he calls out to God's mercy. And this is the first ingredient in a pattern of restoration when we want to get right with God after sin. There are four stages, and this is the first ingredient the idea of mercy. What is mercy, if I had to ask you for a definition? Well, theologically, this is what it is, according to Millard Erickson. He said that God's mercy is His tender-hearted, loving compassion for His people. It is His tenderness of heart toward the needy. So if grace contemplates human beings as sinful, guilty, and condemned, mercy is sees them as miserable and needy. Another word for miserable and needy would be pitiful. We are pitiful in the eyes of God when we fall into sin. And so the only thing we can do is cry out. The only thing we can do is call out to God to give us mercy because we deserve condemnation and judgment. But in his mercy, he chooses to overlook that. And that's what Nathan the prophet said to him there in 2 Samuel twelve thirteen. The pictures in the Old Testament of mercy that I think are the best are the Passover experience in the book of Exodus, and then the idea of the Day of Atonement, when God passed over the sins of the people, the idea being that God would cover for the sins of the people who put their trust in the sacrifice that was made for the sin. And of course, that transitions to the New Testament, where we have the one-time sacrifice for sin that is offered in the blood of Jesus Christ that is the source of our mercy. Now, as you study the New Testament, there are several other terms that are kind of synonymous with the mercy of God. And two that I think of that I think really speak to where we're going with this are ransom and propitiation. Ransom being the idea that through the blood of Jesus Christ, God has paid the penalty for our sin, so we have access to God again. And the idea of propitiation which is a big theological word that's still used in the old King James Version. It's the idea that God, through Jesus Christ, has wrath that is satisfied through the blood of the Son. That is, that there's only one thing that can satisfy the wrath of a holy God or propitiate our sin, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the only thing that we can call upon when we fall into sin. And I've mentioned in the... uh, verses 15 through 28 of Hebrews chapter 9, the concept of the Old Testament leading into the New Testament is mentioned there, and it concludes by saying that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So, in the New Testament, it is the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from sin. And Paul puts it in this light in Titus chapter 3. He says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So the standard for salvation in the New Testament is not our own righteous works, but it is the mercy of God through the blood offered by Jesus Christ. And we're going to be looking at this in greater detail as we go over the next couple months, beginning with Ash Wednesday on the 1st of March, and then 40 days up to Easter Sunday. So you need to call for mercy because that's God's standard for salvation. And then secondly, you need to call for cleansing. The idea of cleansing from sin. We see a couple references to that here in this passage. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Then down in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The... Levitical concept of using the hyssop branch to dip in blood is used at least three times in the Old Testament. It pictures cleansing. We see it used in the Passover when they sprinkled the blood upon the lintel of the doorpost. We see it used in Leviticus chapter 14 when it is a symbol of lepers being cleansed from their uncleanness. And also in Numbers chapter 19 when it is the instrument that's used to bring purification when touching of dead bodies. Fast forward to the cross in John chapter 19. Right before Jesus died, and it's only recorded in John out of the four Gospels, we're told after, after this, after Jesus spoke to John about the fact he needed to take care of his mother, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst, and a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. So we see the link between the Old Testament and the New Testament when Jesus was on the cross and when he said, it is finished. That's the idea of complete cleansing from sin. Now it's used also in the imagery in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18-18. In nineteen, we're told this: "Come now, let us reason together," says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And in that great prophecy in Isaiah fifty-three, concerning Jesus being that sacrificial lamb, we're told in Isaiah chapter fifty-three, verses five. And 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Because all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him. That's referring in the Old Testament to what Jesus would do. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So all of our sin is laid on Upon Jesus, and that is the source of our cleansing. And it's tied on a practical level to our ability to confess our sins before God. Go forth to 1 John chapter 1. We're told if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, "'He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins "'and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness.'" So the idea of cleansing is tied on a practical level to this notion of confession. And we're gonna see that here in Psalm 51 because what David did is he asked God for mercy, then he asked him for cleansing, but in order for him to receive the mercy and the cleansing, he had to be willing to call out to God in confessing his sin, And that's what we need to do as well, practically speaking, when we fall into sin. Otherwise, we're going to be uh, stumbling around in our Christian walk, and we're not going to receive that freedom that comes with the knowledge of forgiveness. So David was willing to confess his sin, and that's the third ingredient of restoration. Let's look again at Psalm 51. And there are about four or five things we need to see here in Psalm 51. First of all, verse 3. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Sin has an imprint on our conscience. How is that so? Well, Jesus says in John 16, verse 7, that it's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. Sin has a piercing impact upon our conscience. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He says, because of the power of conscience and the knowledge of the sin nature that still indwells him, He says, I'm finding myself constantly not doing the things I should be doing and the things that I should not be doing, and it's kind of a confusing situation. And the reason why that is so is because the fact that that indwelling sin nature is always present. What David is doing in confessing his sin is saying that this sin is ever before me. It's something that I cannot get out of my mind. And so the only way that it's going to be able to become free from his mind as if God does a mighty work in his life to restore him. But it has that imprint. And then also, you have to understand when you confess your sin, you have to confess your sin against God. Now, some people talk about how they wrong somebody else, and it is true if you did wrong somebody else, you need to be willing to admit your failing to that person, whether it's your spouse, whether it's your children, co-workers, or other people. But ultimately, our sin is not against other people. It's ultimately against God. And the idea in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, is that when we confess our sins, we are agreeing with God about what His Word and what His Spirit is convicting us concerning our sin. And so when we confess our sin, God is just in His holiness to judge us, but we have the freedom that comes from knowing that Christ has taken our eternal judgment so that we don't have to live with that condemnation, and judgment. But David knew that he would still face the consequences for his sin. So he had to battle that. But at the same time, when he knew that his sin was ultimately against God, he had the freedom to know that God would forgive him ultimately. And ultimately, he would be able to have a restored, transformed relationship with God. The third ingredient here, which we see in verse 5, he says... Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In the doctrines of the Reformation, we call this either the doctrine of original sin or the doctrine of depravity. And if you look at the book of Romans, you see that Paul describes this doctrine in intricate detail, especially Romans 3. You could also look at Romans 5 and Romans 7. It's the doctrine of depravity. He's saying, I was conceived... In sin. That's a powerful thought, isn't it? To know that each one of us carries that sin nature with us from the time we were conceived in our mother's womb. Then also, notice in verse 6, he's admitting that sin is not something that's external. It's not just breaking rules. It's not just violating laws. It's not just messing around with some other person's standards. What it is, is it's an internal thing. It's a violation of our image bearing identity. It starts deep within the heart. That's what he talks about here in verse 6. And this, again, goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when we're told when Adam and Eve sinned that they were naked and that it was at that point that they were ashamed because they knew their nakedness before a holy God. So confession is not just saying to another person or saying to God, I'm sorry. It goes much deeper than that. Confession... Is something that is indeed good for the soul, but it's also the realization that each one of us needs to come clean when we find ourselves in sin. Again, theologically, Romans chapter 3 says it best. Paul puts together some writings from the Psalms and from Proverbs, Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. And just listen to what Paul talks about here. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. "...for we've already been charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is upon their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness." Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And what he is doing in Romans 3 is he's presenting a portrait of a universal indictment against humanity and saying that not one of us can go before a holy God and say that we are sinless. So those teachers out there that are saying that there's the way for us to become sinlessly sinless, perfect, to do away with the sin nature. They certainly contradict what Paul is talking about here in Romans chapter 3. There is no way for any one of us to be able to obtain righteousness in our own strength and in our own righteous deeds. We have to call upon the mercy of God, and we have to call for cleansing, and we have to make sure that when we fall into sin, we confess it before God so that he knows that we take our sins seriously because sin is a serious thing. And then finally, transformation. Transformation. This is where the true change takes place. So as David transitions to the second half of Psalm 51, we talk about being transformed. He talks about the fact that he wants to have a new restored relationship with his God. So go forth to the next slide if you have it. Do you have it or not? Okay, transformation. So David's next call is a call for transformation. And I'm just going to list off these ingredients. If you're taking notes, just kind of mark them by the verse in your Bible if you want to study them fuller during your week because each of these elements has different verses in the New Testament that kind of parallel the thought that David gives as you look through them. There are eight ingredients to transformation. Wow, that's a big list of things. But notice, David is not trying to confess his sin lightly. And he's not taking it with a grain of salt. He really wants true transformation. And the only way for that to happen is for him to call on God to create something new and beautiful in his life despite the sin that he's committed. So there are eight things. And I'm just going to kind of list them off for you. Mark them if you studied the Bible on your own this week. And take a look at what some of these elements are. And maybe you can see when you commit a particular sin that there's a particular aspect of your restoration that you need to seek after because maybe you don't need all eight of these ingredients when you fall into sin, but maybe you need two or three. So he first of all says, created me a clean heart in verse 10, the first part. The idea there is that the heart is the seat of our emotions, our desires, and our will. And so what he's asking is that God would change his will that God would change his desires, that God would change his heart in such a way that he would not seek after sin, that he would instead seek after serving God and following him completely. So he wants a clean heart. Then he also wants a right spirit. When he's talking about renewing a right spirit, he's talking about having a reorientation of his direction in life. This is one of the things we talk about a lot over at the hospital in the 12 Steps program that I'm involved with when I do spirituality groups and talk one-on-one with the service members who are there to try to eliminate substance abuse and alcohol from their lives, they need to have a reorientation of their spirituality so that their lives are in alignment with the will of God. That's what David is asking for, a redirection, a reorientation, so that his spirit would be in alignment with the will of God. Then also third, confirmation of his status as a child of God. He says to God to make sure that he doesn't cast him away from his presence and takes not his Holy Spirit from him. The idea here is that the devil, when you fall into sin, is going to try to tell you maybe you've lost your salvation or maybe your status before God is shaky. And what David is calling upon is for God to not take away his presence from him despite his sinful standing and to make sure that he always has access to him. And so he's asking God to confirm that he's a child of God and to confirm that his presence dwells within him despite the fact that he sinned against him. Then fourth, he asks him to restore the joy of... And David does not say the joy of my salvation. He says the joy of your salvation. There's a distinction there, I think, because David recognizes that salvation doesn't come from man. It comes from the Lord. And so what he's saying is, restore to me the joy of your salvation so that I might have that ability to get up off the mat and serve you again. Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10, one of my favorite verses in all the scriptures says that the joy of the Lord is our strength. How many of you guys grew up in Bible camp or in vacation Bible school singing that praise course, the joy of the Lord is our strength? The joy of the Lord is our strength. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Well, when we sin against God, we can lose that joy from time to time, right? Because we experience the consequences of our sin. We may fall out of fellowship with God for a time, and we may fall out of fellowship with other Christian believers for a time because of the pain that the sin has caused. And so when we lose that joy, we need to call on God to restore that joy once again to us. And you notice as you study the fruit of the Spirit, what's the second of the fruit of the Spirit? Joy, right? So he wants that internal barometer of joy to be present within his heart once again. And then we have four other ingredients. Okay, go ahead. First of all, a willing spirit. That means a spirit that desires to please God, a spirit that is willing to serve God, a spirit that desires to do what God says his best according to his word. And I like hearing testimonies from people who say that for so many years, they were fall, falling falling off the apple cart. They were following the wrong path. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, because of a tremendous earth-shattering transformation, God brought them to a point where they had a willing spirit. And I think of your testimony, Doug, all the time, where you talk about how God has given you a willing spirit that's not something that's generated on our own. That's something that's a supernatural work of a wonderful God. So David is asking for a willing spirit. And also the ability to be an effective witness for him. So when we fall into sin, God may use that sin to be a witness to other people because when we get ourselves up off of the mat through the power of God, that is a testimony to other people when they fall into sin to tell them that something better can come of it. And that's what he's talking about here in verse 13. I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Just as I have received that transformation, other people can receive that transformation. So he's asking God to be an effective witness. And then he's asking God to be able to praise him in the failure. Is that a natural thing for us to be willing to praise God in the failure when we fail God? I know that my testimony of failure goes back to the mid-1980s when I went to the United States Air Force Academy in 1985 and only lasted 17 months because of a course of events that included not being able to pass a PT test, academic probation, and uh, even an honor code violation. And God restored me, and God was able to allow me to pick myself up off the mat in the late 1980s and then ultimately brought me forward into seminary pastoring churches, and into the army chaplaincy. I didn't always feel the desire to praise God when I was going through the bottom, but uh, I know that God restored me because he wanted to use me for something good. And so that's where I praise God in the failure to know that in the failure, God can produce something better. And then finally, each one of us who falls into sin, regardless of what it is, needs to understand that God wants us to know that the thing that pleases him most is that we have a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. To me, that says sin will take all of the pride away from us. When we think that we've arrived, you need to make sure that you watch out because that's when things turn on you. In fact, James talks about the fact that uh, the one who is proud better take heed lest he fall, right? And I think that, this is what David is talking about, the fact that he had to have a broken and contrite heart before the presence of Holy God, despite his position of king over Israel. He had to confess his sin, which means that he had to get to the very bottom of himself and acknowledge that he could not do it his way any longer. And that's what God said that, "I will acknowledge your sin." and it's confession, and because you're broken over it, I'm going to restore you, I'm going to transform you, and I'm going to use you for greater glory in the future. And that's what God is telling each one of us. I wrap up with this. Broken, yet joyful. This is Jonathan Edwards, who experienced a lot of brokenness back during the time of the First Great Awakening after he lost his pastorate in Northampton, Massachusetts. He says, "All gracious affections, that's feelings and emotions are a sweet aroma to Christ are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope, and their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble, broken-hearted joy. That's what I want to have that humble, broken-hearted joy. So even when I fall into sin, I can experience that mercy, that cleansing in the confession and that transformation from a loving yet holy God.